This Short Code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Code podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews by students for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcode.com. Welcome back to the Short Code Podcast, a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I had to say this morning, as I sat down to write today's show, my ego suggested that I inform you my name is Dave Etler. But I'm not the kind of person that needs to tell you my name is Dave Etler. No. Instead of telling you my name is Dave Etler, I'm going to introduce the non-Dave Etler people I have in this room with me. Say hello to Aline Sanduk. Hi. Give a friendly greeting to Jaden Bowen. Hello, everyone. Mark Mubarak is joining us from California via the internet. Hey, hey. And we have a new co-host, Shakura Sabri. Hello, everybody. Here to have fun with us today. Thank you for joining us, Shakura. I'm glad we. I'm glad you finally made it. You're you're an MSTP student. I am glad to be here. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much, guys. It is the season to be applying to medical school, and I have so many listener questions to address on today's show. Questions about openness on applications and in interviews. Questions about preparation for interviews, and an additional question about death. Just to make a cheerful end to the show. Um, which is why, aside from that last question, I th- this is why I've also asked our Assistant Director of Admissions, Amy Ahern, to lend us a veneer of credibility on today's show. And we're also joined by Tom O'Shea, the Director of Admissions for CECOM's highly regarded PA program. Amy, Tom, thanks for uh, visiting with us today. Happy to be here. Same here. So... Let's just, we got a lot to do. Let's just jump right in. Magnus, Magnus, nice. I like that. Magnus wants to know how he can prepare for med school interviews. Let's hear from Magnus. My name is Magnus Chun and I am currently applying to medical schools. I want to thank everyone on the Short Code Podcast for providing me advice on applying to medical schools and what it is like to be a medical student. I have been listening to the podcast for a while now, and you guys make my car rides enjoyable. I am emailing to provide a topic suggestion for your next podcast, interview preparation, and tips. I applied early this cycle, and I am very fortunate to have received an interview invite at one of my top schools. Nice. I am wondering if you guys had any suggestions or advice on how to prepare for medical school interviews, MMI and regular, and strategies or tips for doing well on interviews. Looking forward to hearing from you all on this. Keep up the great work. We'll do our best, Magnus. That's why... The principal reason why Tom is here, because uh, we in the the medical student side don't do MMI. We do uh, regular interviews, but the PA program is uh, big on the MMI. So I wanted to uh, be able to offer you some advice about that. But you guys over here, you guys have participated in in interviews of maybe several of both kinds. Anybody here do an MMI? I actually did not. Mm-mm. Nope. Nope. Oh, well, okay. Uh, I did do a couple um, at New York Medical College, or Albany Medical College, and then Oregon Health and Science. Yeah. Uh, Did they make you sign some sort of agreement that says you're not supposed to talk about it? 
Uh, so yeah, your you know general advice is okay, but the specifics of what the questions are, um, yeah. of course, is something that they want to keep you know private and personal. Right. Um, but I think uh, in the general things, which they kind of tell everybody prefacing, uh, even before you show up for the interview, uh, some of the big factors with MMIs and preparation is just kind of really buying into the situation. Um, I think it's a lot like our standardized uh, patients. So whatever the scenario is that you're given, just kind of jumping right in and really uh, going into that character and assuming it. I think that's the biggest challenge um, of just buying in and playing that role of what they want. Yeah. Tom, um, tell us a little bit about how the mini multiple interview works for you guys. Uh, Sure, Dave. Uh, You know, there's... Lots of uh, ways that institutions can create and use the multi-mini interview. Uh, For the PA program at the University of Iowa, ours is quite extensive uh, compared to my research of other institutions out there where we actually have 10 interview stations. And so, uh, you know, research suggests that you have at least six, no more than 10. So we decided to go with 10 here at the University of Iowa. (laughs) Uh, But um, it's an opportunity for, we decided to use the MMI for a couple of different reasons. Number one, it allows us to bring in a lot of different types of individuals to help us rate candidates that are going through the interview process. So we're able to use faculty and staff in our department. We're able to use current PA students. We're able to use current uh, recent PA alums. Uh, we're able to use other healthcare providers that our students may interact with either during clinical rotations or when they get into the world of work. And so it just allows us to have individuals that have a little bit uh, more um, stake in the process of admitting students into our program. And then it allows us to really get to know the students other than reading them through the application process. And so the MMI is designed to look at many different characteristics of the individual going through the process, whether it's communication, whether it's teamwork, whether it's the opportunity or the ability to think on their feet, uh, whether it's to adapt to different um, scenarios. So the MMI is designed where there could be standard questions that a student has to talk about themselves. There could be standard questions where a student has to talk about their experience. There may be a situation where they have to come in and role play with another individual in the room. Um, And so it's a really it's an opportunity for us to see the student and how they adapt and how they interact um, and how they react to um, situations sort of um, at what we would say is a high stake environment when they're going through the um, admissions process. Even though we're Iowa nice, we try to relax it a little bit for the students. But those are sort of some of the things. And so my advice to students is be able to talk about yourself in a humble manner, Uh, be able to talk about your situations, your experiences, what you learn from them, what you gain from them, you know, how you would make decisions um, in a healthcare um, setting and really be able to adapt to different types of things because you're going to be thrown at or things are going to be thrown at you in a variety of different ways within within those 10 stations or within those stations where you're interviewing. So is there a doesn't sound like the kind of thing that lends itself well to preparation per se. 
Not necessarily. I mean, you, you, there are typical questions about who are you and how do you think and how do you describe yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your experience. But lots of institutions will use them in a role play situation or uh, for us particularly, it's a healthcare scenario. So we have five stations of the 10 that are health specific. So we want to draw upon their healthcare experiences or we give them a scenario and ask them what would they do? Um, how would they make a decision? Why would they make this decision? Um, and then the other five really get at who they are uh, as, as an individual. Tell us good things about yourself. Tell us bad things about yourself. Things that you're proud of in your life. Decisions you may not be so proud of. What you've learned from those decisions. You know, how you came to those decisions. Is there a, is there a role... Do you think uh, that research in the institution itself might play in the MMI or not so much? Like knowing what the priorities of the institution that you're applying to are, for instance? Definitely. So for our program specifically, every year uh, we sit down and we really look at characteristics that we feel are important to have in the students that are admitted into our program. And a lot of those characteristics, characteristics excuse me, are driven from the mission of the institution, our program specifically. So we look at our program uh, mission first. Then we obviously look at the College of Medicine mission. And then we look at UIHC as an umbrella uh, organization and so we try to look at what characteristics we look for in our student and so for students to understand what those missions are would definitely help guide them in answering questions that mm. might be valuable did you do that mark or did you wing it um not i didn't look up too much i mean i looked at the schools before applying to them so i knew some stuff about it but not like in great great detail mm -hmm. uh, i think winging it is the best thing it's kind of a situation <laughs> situation dependent so you know just walking in being yourself uh and kind of taking things as they come just like any interaction with a person that you haven't met before mark you're so uh smooth and cool though in life <laughs> in in life in general i think probably you 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 did fine it's probably going to depend a lot on how comfortable you are in that sort of situation so one thing I would say, um, a good friend of mine that is not the most uh, extroverted is picturing someone that they know and kind of the way that they act in that first couple seconds. And I know like that helps me out when I go to any type of a, let's say like a conference or something like that. And I just, I don't know. And there's a massive group of people. I picture a buddy of mine um, who I know very well that is in sales and he's just so outgoing. He, the way he kind of smiles and, you know, goes into a situation and just starts out, um, it kind of adds that little bit of confidence of breaking out of your own reservations. Um, maybe yeah. that could help. Yeah, I do that sometimes. Pretend I'm somebody I'm not. Well, I'm not saying pretend <laughs> no, I'm I mean, somebody I'm not. I, 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 yeah, but I mean, you know, like try to see yourself in a role that ah. you're not quite comfortable with. I'm not going to, I'm not going to like, assume another person's identity or anything like that uh, or alternatively you could just assume that the person you're talking to is someone they're not because it kind of <laughs> sounds like that's what mark is proposing <laughs> actually i have to admit of all the people that i see who network really well are people who talk to the person in front of them as if they know them already mm -hmm. and I, yeah right like i've noticed sometimes you know like like very slick like socially slick people will bring someone to a party and they'll just be chatting and I'm like, oh, so how long have you been friends? And they're like, oh, we just met actually like 10 minutes ago. So there's something to that for sure. Mark, I have a question about your MMI experiences. Did, what? How would you rate the level of conversation 
in the experience because the MMI really is designed not to be a conversation with the candidate. It's really the question and then the follow-up questions really are geared towards trying to get at the characteristics that that specific interview station or question um, Mm -hmm. is getting like. But for us, I try to make sure that our interviewers, I wouldn't say necessarily follow that research on the MMI, like we're Iowa nice. I want them to, to make sure that the candidate feels comfortable, but I know a lot of other institutions, it's, it's this question and the follow-up questions are only focused on this question. It's really not designed to be a conversation, which sometimes the, you know, the candidate or the applicant can feel a little bit uncomfortable. So what were your experiences? Um, what I noticed was I think, uh, some of the schools did a fantastic job of prefacing what the goals were of each, not each station in particular, but just kind of in generalities at the beginning. Um, starting with, you know, when you got that, you know, invitation email of saying, hey, look, some of these are designed to be, uh, you know, difficult situations where there's not necessarily, you know, a way of getting past, uh, you know, something going on, or it's very narrow and directed towards evaluating how you approach a certain situation. Um, so I think that prefacing was the key to feeling comfortable with certain stuff of like, okay, I'm understanding like you're, we're not looking for a broad back and forth. We are really directed in this very narrow range, um, which I thought was helpful because it's always, you know, I think when you are interviewing, you're trying to, you have your own interests and things that you enjoy, but you're also trying to understand what is the individual, what is the interviewer trying to learn about me? So that I can tell them how I think about those things and how I, you know, react to those things. Um, so, yeah. so clearly, part of the preparation is just understanding what it is they're they're looking for and, and paying attention to what they tell you. They're looking. Yeah, for. definitely. I'd say paying attention at the beginning. Um, you know, when they preface the, you know, going into the MMIs as a whole, um, it's not an aggressive situation it's an evaluation and that's okay um they want to get to know you and make sure you're a good fit and yeah all right there was yeah um in terms of the conversation at all the ones i went to there was a separate you know or embedded within you know more traditional format that's that's what i was going to ask because i've heard one of the major complaints about the mmi is that people feel like they don't have an opportunity to talk about themselves or why they're applying to that school in particular. But it sounds like we incorporate that here, which is really helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we heard that from feedback from the first year. So we're going on the fourth year at um, Iowa for the PA program using the MMI. And the first year we heard that. So the previous two years and then uh, obviously moving forward, we have what's called a rest station, if you will. Unfortunately, somebody starts with the rest station and somebody ends with the rest station, but um, it's not it's not a question. It's not scored. It's just an opportunity for the uh, interviewer and the applicant to have a conversation, gives them a chance to sort of rest their brain, um, you know, share things with us that since they've applied, what's new, what's changed, any information you want us to know. So it's just kind of a, a way for for us to get them. Obviously, we have points throughout the day and a half of interviews for our program for those individuals to get to know them. But we wanted to specifically build something into that MMI process to sort of give the applicant a little bit of a break, I guess. Mm-hmm. Nice. So moving on to regular interviews, which the rest of you all took part in. Um, do you remember, you guys, what it is you did to prepare 
for your regular interviews, if anything? I know for me, it's easy to write about um, why medicine and pretty much every school that you apply to. That's one question that they may ask you because that's a important question for right. you to know. Um, so personally, it was easy to write about it. The application process when I was formulating the essays, I'm like, I can gather all this information, all these experiences that I've had over the such and such number of years and actually intertwine it all perfectly within an essay. But being constrained by the time with that you have for an interview, I had to really, I guess, come out of my comfort zone and actually pick the few things that actually were like the high points of why I applied to these different medical schools. Mm-hmm. And so I had to pretty much practice it. Um, I'm not sure if that's an experience that's what everybody does, but that's what I had to do. And so I just sat down with people that I know. It's like, can you just ask me questions? Ask me anything that you want to know as far as what you think um, a medical school application person will want to know. And so I had my brother, some close friends, um, people I didn't know. They just asked me questions. I really challenged myself to think about these things and actually verbalize them within a certain time. It's a good strategy for somebody who is introverted, I think, because, and we, and we, even I am an introvert, um, although I talk into this microphone all the time. Um, but yeah, there are times when, you know, I would rather not be social. <laughs> and the interview is one of those times where you basically have to be social. I mean, it's, you're just on. So I like the idea of practicing with other people. What about you guys? So I actually did a mock interview which was really helpful. It wasn't the the most accurate experience because my interviewers were uh, two professors that um, I was pretty close with. They both attended my wedding, so not quite the same as walking into a medical school interview, but it was a good chance to, to work on kind of thinking on your feet and developing answers to questions you're not expecting. Um, and then I ran through... At the very beginning of the interview season, um, I ran through a list of like really common interview questions mm-hmm. and just kind of answered answered them in my head to just get a feel for again coming up with answers on the fly. Yeah. Um, and then from there, uh, each interview I tried to do a little bit of research on the school. Um, I think applying MSTP, it was definitely more focused on research and how I would fit into. Uh, the the school's research and research goals, uh, but also looking at the things that they seem to be really excited about and trying to develop, you know, answers that reflected my interest or experiences in those same areas. Hundred percent. Yeah. What do you think, Amy? Sound like good advice? Yes, excellent advice. Um, a couple of things I wanted to add. Um, had we planned a little bit more, Dave, we could have queued up the Christmas song. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Well, I don't plan. <laughs> okay. I don't either. Um, but because it really is listeners. I mean, this in admissions, it is the most wonderful time of the year because we have thousands of applications that are coming in, which sounds sort of terrifying, but for us in admissions, it's like the happiest, the, the precursor to Christmas, which is the interview season, in my opinion. Anyway. I, I can't tell if you're being sarcastic no. or if you're being completely <laughs> serious. Completely serious. It's so fun to just know that we're starting this again. And and I'm there's a point to my story here. So I think that people need to prepare to a point 
and be authentic. That's the thing that I want you Mm -hmm. to keep in mind when you're going through the process, because you can prepare to a point where you have essentially opened a can and just started spewing information that you don't even believe anymore because you've been practicing so much and you've been so coached that you've stopped being authentic. And so I really want people to prepare to a point and be authentic. And that is really the way I want you to approach the interview process. Because if you're not being authentic, you don't want to be accepted to a medical school that's not a good fit for you, right? That's not going to make anybody happy. And so preparation is good. I think it's great that you did mock interviews and just listen to yourself saying some of these things. Why do you want to be a doctor? That's not something you maybe talk about every night at dinner um, with family members, but Doing that to practice is great, and then making sure that you're really authentic in your experience on the interview trail is really important, too. Is there a role for um, in, in the interview process, or is there is it a good idea in the interview process to understand, um, you know, current events surrounding healthcare? Will that be a top, could that be a topic of discussion? Sure, it definitely could be. And I think if you're somebody that maybe doesn't have a lot of healthcare experience already, um, something you can do is talk to the physicians that you're shadowing, possibly run something by them in the context of what you've heard in the news or seen um, somewhere online. Run that by people who are working in healthcare if maybe you don't have that firsthand experience as much as you think you should or you want in your own life. I didn't do this for the interview. I only got this job after... Um, job. The interview season. Are we calling it over. a job now? Well, so so the job I'm thinking of. I feel oh, like, you are talking about a job. I yeah, thought you were. Okay. Yeah, like an actual job. So I, I feel like one of the best ways to prepare that maybe most people wouldn't think of is to wait tables at yeah. a restaurant. Because I feel like the goal is exactly the same. You are walking up to people who are in a bad mood. They're tired. They're hungry. They probably don't want to be there. You know, what some, restaurant did you work? Yeah, okay, did right. you work at? Well, let me take all that back. Except like hungry. Waffle House at three a.m. Yeah. Like. The IHOP, the Denny's, in the middle of the night. Um, because your the goal is the same. You're you're trying to appeal to people who have no incentive to like you from scratch. You know, in a very short period of time, and also like hungry people are difficult to deal with. And so if you can get on their good side really quickly. Um, you can almost like in your mind see the monetary value of your tip go up or down based on like their body language, you know, in a very short period of time. So I kind of wish I had. And so I did wait tables, you know, before I got into school or before I started school. And I wish I had done that sooner because it really very character building and it was also good for public speaking skills, I would say. Did that for one day. Hated it. Oh, really? <laughs> did you yeah, really? I did for one day. I worked in a Greek restaurant. For a day, lied about my experience waiting tables, uh, was uh, on the staff all by myself in that entire restaurant. I also had to wash dishes and I got stiffed on a check. And I was like, you know what? Uh, and I had to pay for it out of pocket. And I was like, you know what? I'm not, I don't, first of all, I don't think that's legal. Second of all, I'm not going to do this anymore. <laughs> this is not for me. It's like, I'm gonna, just going to leave. Yeah. Just this takes, this clearly I'm takes a special kind of person. Uh, anyway, that's my story. Okay. Amy, you mentioned authentic, being authentic. And so that's a great segue into our next question um, from Cameron. Actually, our next two questions from, from first from Cameron, who has a specific political slash moral cause he wants to talk about 
during interviews. Let's hear from Cameron. Hello, fellow Midwesterners. My name is Cam. Love the podcast. I grew up just across the river from Keokuk, Iowa, so I love hearing the Midwest references. Hy-Vee is the best. I live in Canada now, but that is a bit of a story. I'm writing my secondary essays and I was wondering if talking about a political or moral belief is too risky, specifically Medicare for all. When these secondaries ask get-to-know-you questions or moral questions, I think that discussing my view of healthcare as a human right is of the utmost relevance and importance, but I also don't want to scare admissions committees into thinking that I viva la resistance and want to start a revolution while in medical school. <laughs> Any thoughts would be highly appreciated. So definitely don't wear a Che Guevara shirt to your interview. It's <laughs> probably a good first step. What do you guys think uh, from your perspectives uh, dealing with people on admissions committees and such? Yeah, let's start with the professional yeah. before mm -hmm. I just make something up. <laughs> Can I start with the students? Um, do you? <laughs> so, okay, I guess I, I my first question is I'm, I wonder what the prompt is. I wonder what the question is that he would like to incorporate this type of answer into. That's the first thing that, that I would, I need to fully understand that part before I understand exactly where we're going with this. Um, so you can't see, for instance, among our questions, our secondary application questions, where that would come up. I, I can't. Okay. Um, no, well, I can't that's fine. Right I mean, now. schools ask different things. So sure, sure. So that's the first part I need to understand. The second part is that you need to remember your audience in this process. So again, being authentic is extremely important and you need to remember your audience and who's reading this. So we're talking a lot of hypotheticals, which makes it really hard to answer this question. That's what we do, Amy. Oh, That's gosh. what we do. <laughs> <laughs> but you're handling it like a pro. <laughs> um, so it's hard for me to really be able to provide some really sound advice here. I would really, I would encourage this person to be authentic and remember their audience, knowing that you can polarize some people and really entice some people in your answer no matter what it is in a lot of cases right um yeah tom i mean i i would have to agree i would probably strongly encourage an individual unless it's a specific prompt or question to sort of stay away from bringing in those personal beliefs so those personal um, ideations into answering a question it may come out in the interview process, uh, particularly in the MMI, which we discussed earlier. There may be some very specific questions where they're geared to see which side of a fence an individual may stand on certain situations, because a lot of the health questions in the MMI are very focused on real life scenarios or situations going on in healthcare, um, and so you may have an opportunity to do that in an interview although it may be in a four to five minute window. And so you'd want to be concise and very precise with your answer. But again, like Amy mentioned, recognize the audience and any answer or the way that you answer a question is going to turn on some people and turn off others. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you just kind of have to keep that in mind. Yeah, you're you're taking a risk, aren't you? I mean, you're and 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 that risk may be acceptable to you. I mean, you may decide that uh, I am who I am. I have my views. These views are important enough to me that I don't really care if I turn off 
an interview committee or or interviewer um, because if I can't express that opinion, then I'm going to be sad in med school. But he's also not saying we're not talking about the context of an interview as much as in an application. Itself, oh, yeah, that's what I meant. Right. Yeah. I in think which, that's important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're writing mm-hmm. it. You can't read someone's nonverbals. You can't. It's not an engagement of a two way communication channel. It, this is just you're writing, it, you're putting out there done. So, yes, I think in the interview, it actually might be more appropriate to talk about these things that are very important to you. But in that application, you don't get to engage in a dialogue. Yeah, and be careful to answer the question that they're asking. Um, I wouldn't try to work it in to a question where it's not, that's not, you know, that's not specifically being asked. Because if you do that, you're just going to be, they're just going to be like, well, this person is non-responsive. We're going to throw them on the bottom of the pile, I would suggest. I'm, I might have misread the question, but I kind of interpret it as this person describing their beliefs in the context of like one of their meaningful experiences and activities saying like oh you know i worked on someone's campaign this one summer and one of the missions of you know this person's platform was medicare for all like that was how i interpreted it fair enough i mean that could be more what this refers to um and i guess if that's the case okay is that a bit more appropriate in your mind Yeah. yeah yeah i guess the the position in the application seems to make a big difference like the context matters Mm -hmm. a lot yeah so i actually have a a little bit of direct experience uh with this because i actually talked about it in an interview that i thought uh the united states should move towards universal health care um and so i think for me that's kind of uh the differences in an interview um as amy mentioned you're you're reading nonverbals. you're in a conversation um, you have the opportunity to answer questions, uh, whereas when you put it on paper and send it out, you don't know who your audience is going to be. Um, and people come down a lot of places on the, on those types of topics. So, yeah, it's just it, it's worth yep. considering that um, you always have just by random chance the possibility that it will end up in front of somebody who completely disagrees um, and you will have no way to know um, and it could affect your outcome. When you're talking to someone in person, that's not the only piece of information that they're gathering about you. But if it's the first thing that they learn about you, they may form an incorrect interpretation of like your entire person. Mm-hmm. And I, I find that that's a point in common with a lot of people who have a personality trait or like a demographic feature that they're, you know, is a little bit dicey like for example an unconventional sexual orientation or like an ethnicity that is not currently politically popular like you know you know for some people that's not the first thing they want someone to know about them they want other people to get to know them first and then it's like the drop in the bucket it's diluted by other things in case that person doesn't like that thing so i totally agree with Jaden. well you're getting ahead of us because that <laughs> has yeah. that is the <laughs> The next question we have, this one is from Sarah who wrote in whether to ask whether to ask whether her sexual orientation is a place in the application slash interview process. Let's hear from Sarah. My name is Sarah and I am a pre-med student in the midst of application season. The primary reason I am writing is to comment on how great this podcast is. Aww. Super informative and of course, hilarious. 
I have definitely been the recipient of weird stares from other drivers as I crack up alone in my car while listening to the podcast in traffic. The second reason I am writing is to see if you... That may not be the entire reason they're laughing at you in traffic. We don't know what you're doing, how, how, you, you know, how you're dressed. I just want to point that out. Anyway. The second reason I am writing is to see if you all had any insight to share regarding the LGBTQ presence, or lack thereof, in medical school. Most of the schools I have applied to thus far seem to have LGBTQ groups on campus but I really haven't been able to find much information. Also, in your experience, is it to an applicant's benefit to mention their sexual orientation in an application or interview? Being queer is definitely an important aspect of my identity, but I haven't really found a natural way to incorporate it into my application. It would be awesome if you all had any words of wisdom or anecdotes to share. Anyways, thanks for being awesome. Thanks to the Short Code Podcast, I no longer dread my morning commute. You are too kind, Sarah. Um, all right, well, I would point out that... Um, yeah, I mean, schools are different. You can look around and find out, you know, whether they have LGBTQ groups in them uh, or, you know, student interest groups, things like that. Uh, we definitely have a, you know, sort of a robust community of LGBTQ individuals here at the College of Medicine. So you can stop your research right there for CECOM. Um so, Yeah, but I do. I did look up. I did try to figure out, you know, like. Were there any statistics nationwide on this sort of thing? And uh, there aren't that I can tell. I do know that there was one uh, study out of uh, Stanford, I think in 2015. The Stanford study said 30% of sexual minority medical students hide or don't reveal their sexual and gender identity. 40% of medical students who identify themselves as not heterosexual report that they were afraid of discrimination in medical school. So, okay. Yeah. That's kind of a big deal. Moving on to the question of whether or not it's it's a good idea to bring it up in your application slash interview uh, or, yeah, interview process. What do you think? Well, I guess I would start with by saying again, if it feels authentic for you to bring it up in the context of an interview, then you should. When someone says, tell me a little bit about yourself, and that's one of the first things that you want to share about your story of your life then yeah, I think it needs to come up because that to me says that is an authentic part of you. And if you don't talk about that, you're missing, you know, you're missing the understanding of me if you don't know this is part of my story. So that's my perspective. Um, I, I would have to agree as well with Amy. Um, being an individual that identifies as a um, homosexual male, I would say if it is who you are and it is a part of your life, then express it as much as you want and understand that the individuals that are going through this process with you, you're going to understand institution fit as well. And if, if it, if that turns them off, then that's probably not a place that you want to be anyway. Uh, and so, you know, you want to be somewhere where you're going to be um, accepted, you're going to be supported and there are going to be resources for you outside of a classroom um, to live your life who you are. So I would say, yes, do it. Definitely. I have a story that I wanted to add um, that kind of exemplifies this. Um, 
it's a it's a little bit tangential, but there was a fourth year student a couple of years ago who um, sat on a panel of fourth year students talking about residency interviews, and she was very visibly pregnant, actually. Um, and so a lot of people in the audience were like, "Well, weren't you afraid of interviewing while so pregnant? Because you know maybe that would preclude you from being you know accepted into that residency." She was like, "No, actually, it worked out for the best because technically they're not allowed to ask you, but." you know, by virtue of it being so obvious, she was gauging the person's reaction, you know, to her pregnancy and using that information to decide, you know, if this is a, uh, you know, a, a progressive institution or an institution that would, you know, sort of create problems for her and not allow her to have the space that she needed to breastfeed and things like that. And so, I mean, it was harder to conceal that, but I thought that was a, a really important insight for figuring out which places would be a good fit as you guys are describing, so... Um, yeah, and I guess the other thing to think about is, you know, organizations are not monolithic. Um, it's possible for the person that you're talking to to have different attitudes and opinions about such things than the the institution as a whole. So that can either work. I mean, I don't know how important that is to tell you because that, that can work in your favor or, or against it. But... Um, but yeah, um, I was actually surprised to hear you guys um, say this, to be honest with you, because um, part of me wanted to say, you know, leave that question for your, you know, if you wanted to find out more about the LGBTQ community at your institution of choice, ask your admission staff about that offline. Um, maybe before you come for your interview, maybe you... Maybe when, I mean, admission staffs, admissions staff, okay, I'll go with that, are always willing to answer questions, or they should always be willing to answer questions about the student body, the, the, um, the, uh, you, you know, the, the overall culture, that sort of thing. And, um, you know, if during that conversation you don't get a good feeling about it, that will also give you, so maybe you should do that in addition to what we're talking about. Um, as well as rather than sort of, you know, maybe if we, if you want to merge those two bits of advice, um, maybe that would be how to go about it potentially. I am absolutely the least qualified person in the room or on the cloud to talk about issues of identity. Um, but I noticed that many secondary applications asked a question about, um, various identities that are underrepresented um, in medicine. And that seems like a pretty, a pretty natural place to talk about it. And I think overwhelmingly, if they're asking, it's because they have a vested interest in making sure that their incoming class uh, includes these elements of diversity and identity. So it, a lot of places it seemed like to me had an area to talk about that. And um, I'd like to distinguish uh, between this question and Cameron's uh, question, uh, not to dismiss or diminish uh, Cameron's feelings about universal health care, but um, it's a, to me, it's a difference between a position and an identity. Um, and yeah. you can, you can hold a different mm -hmm. position than most of the people around you and be happy in medical school. 
Um, I think it would be very difficult to be in a place where your identity um, is disparaged and still be happy. So uh, to me, it's a it's a matter of you know kind of the the impact this will have later on your experience. And I think uh, one of them, it's definitely worth weeding out opportunities um, because they may not be okay with this. And the other one, you know, you may want to keep your, your doors open, even if the people in the admissions process aren't as friendly towards your view. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Good job, Jaden. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Solid answer. Yeah. I do have one suggestion. And this is going piggybacking off of what Dave said earlier in regards to an institution not being a monolithic institution. So the person that is in front of you may have one view, but to really get a sense of what the students experience firsthand, I think one thing you should do is really reach out to the missions body, see whether or not they have a representative from just general student groups. Can you give me a list of the student representatives for all these student groups? And then just email them because I find that the students here at the university, they're really open and really friendly to like discussing anything with you. And it's like a lawyer and um, your pa whatever. I, I'm thinking patient because we're in medicine, but <laughs> it's attorney um, pr client privilege. And so it won't like go outside of that interaction at all. You know, sometimes if you don't find the group or the community that you're looking for in the medical school itself, um, if this medical school is associated with a big undergrad, potentially you can find that community there. Um, like I recently found out that uh, the University of, of Iowa has a huge like Arab student association and they throw a huge formal dance every year with like belly dancing and they get it catered by like actual Middle Easterners, which I was like, why didn't I know this sooner? This is so amazing. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, if you're if you don't find what you're looking for at the actual in the actual school that you're applying. It doesn't mean that the rest of the institution doesn't have a place for you. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of tempting to sort of look at, at least here anyway, because we have this river. I don't know if, you've, if, if you don't know about, <laughs> if you don't know about uh, the University of Iowa yet, we have this river that divides the campus into two. <laughs> Healthcare is on one side of the river and pretty much the rest of the university is on the other side of the river, except for a couple of dorms. And... Um, and so here, it's, easy, it's sometimes easy to forget that there is a whole institution out there to draw upon and to, um, and to understand and to be a part of if that's what you want to do. So not that we, you know, not that that doesn't happen here. It's just sort of funny for, for you know, we call it, you know, let's go across the river, which, <laughs> which a lot of times we, we sort of make it sound like, you know, let's, uh, let's scale the Great Wall of China. <laughs> Let's, let's go to the uh, wrong side of the track. Yeah, let's yeah. Uh, travel to the other side of the moon. <laughs> yeah, I think a, a good way to describe the two sides of the river is uh, at any night at 3 a.m. you can get a grilled cheese on the <laughs> east side of the river. <laughs> <laughs> on the west side of the river, uh, you get noise complaints for casual <laughs> conversations with your friends. So... That that to me is the the culture divide across the river. An important distinction. Yeah. yeah. Astute observation. Oh, <laughs> uh, all right. We have one last question um, to get to. Our last question today comes from Jake. He's got a question about the Big D. No, I mean death. Wow. All right. <laughs> That's, uh, Maybe you should edit that one out. Uh, hey, short coats. My name is Jake. 
Uh, I really enjoy your weekly episodes and love the information and fun you guys have. Uh, I'm currently working on my pre-med and have worked as an EMT on an ambulance for the past three years. Uh, so my multi-part question for you guys is something that's very close to my heart, which has to do with the death of patients and how physicians and other healthcare providers' PTSD forms from those experiences and how they cope with it. So I'd like to know how they prep you guys for these situations and how in-depth of a discussion it actually is. I know from my EMT class, it was maybe a 10-minute conversation and was chalked up to basically figure out how to deal with it when it happens, um, which seems to be the stigma for the majority of healthcare training from what I've heard and seen. Uh, so my second part, if any of you guys are comfortable sharing, is that you have, if you have experienced any personally traumatic deaths in patients or uh, any kind of situation like that, how have you coped and managed and overcome them? Uh, thanks in advance for any information you guys can provide. And if any anyone that shares or even listens that has these types of experiences, just know you guys are not alone, and it's okay to open up and be vulnerable from time to time. Thanks for listening, and have a good day, short notes. So, death. Um, so we have some MSTP students in the room who have gone through the first you know, sort of year and a half of the curriculum. W was that covered during that time? Do you remember? They're looking at each other. I think it was mentioned a couple times that patients sometimes die. Yeah. And we're supposed to stop that. Y yeah. That's the goal. Yeah. Wait, patients can die? They, yeah, apparently. You're in, you're in the wrong. Yeah. yeah. I got reconsidering the, his life's choices now. The the first year really gives you the impression that we can cure anything. Oh. Uh, yeah. And that you have everything. Yeah. Inside. Yeah. I don't know. I think the university in the last couple of years or so, they've done a good job um, talking about deaf general, not specifically deaf of patients, but the help that's out there if you experience deaf in your personal life. Mm. And I think that applies well to if you have a patient that passes away because you do develop a personal relationship with your patients. And so maybe you all can speak a little bit more on the help that the university has as far as death. Well, I mean, we have a terrific med student counseling center yeah. um, to help deal with things like that. Um, what do you think, Amy? Is there? Yeah, I. I I think it's a tough question. I think it's a really tough question because there is an attitude, and I'm not sure if it's right or wrong, but I think there is an attitude of, well, what is there to say about death? Death is a difficult experience. It's part of the human condition. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, entire wars have been fought on the basis of where you go when you die or if you right. go anywhere when you die, right? Right, right. and so um, maybe the attitude is that, well, you know, we don't have anything, we, we're not sure what to teach about it in particular. And um, Mark, correct me if I'm wrong, but I do believe that a course during your transitions week prior to starting clinical rotations for both, uh, we have it for PA students, and I do believe it is for um, med students as well. There is a section on dealing with difficult conversations of which... Absolutely death and the topic of death and how to have conversations uh, related to deaths of patients is covered um, during that section. So for, for the program, both PA and MD specific, um, it is talked about in um, a transitions course the week before all students start clinical rotations. Mm -hmm. 
And I, I think there's two parts to the uh, death experience as a provider. Um, you know, the you are possibly going to be the individual uh, notifying and conveying what occurred to a family member. Um, so your role in that, as well as I think something else Jake touched on, how that impacts you going forward as well. So in the Transitions Week, uh, the university does a great job, I mean, an outstanding job in really um, giving good education and discussion on how to go appropriately. Um, and also just perspectives of if you haven't experienced, you know, uh, the death of a loved one, how important that moment can be. Um, I thought it was a huge growing experience um, for me. And that comes with, I actually worked as an EMT too for about five years um, and did see, you know, a good amount of death. What something that I found super helpful and going towards the second part of, you know, as, as a provider and your own personal health and growth, um, there's a book by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Uh, she was a nurse that did uh, some hospice. Uh, I believe she was kind of a, in the start of hospice care in the UK um, on death and dying. I thought that was a fantastic book. Um, another one I thought was great was Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. He was a psychiatrist that um, was in the concentration camps and had survived that experience. Uh, as well as, you know, the loss of so many people we knew. And the thing with death is, you know, every experience is so unique and can impact you so differently from being a completely benign thing that, you know, you move on and think nothing of it to it deeply impacts you and affects you that, like you're saying, Dave, uh, you know, what is there to, to talk about it or what is there to discuss? Uh, I think the processing is a huge part. So, you know, having a counseling center, I know... Um, Every healthcare pre-hospital uh, pre organization that I've worked for um, offers counseling for that specifically. Um, if for multi-casualty incidents, usually it's mandatory that you have to go to at least one. Um, and those were great experiences. I mean, they really do help you out. Um, so I think the, you know, using the resources that are, you know, brought for you and preparing yourself also that, hey, this is something that will happen uh, how am I going to prepare for it and how do my life experiences, you know, kind of inform the way I process those types of things, um, can really help you in coping, uh, in healthy ways. Everybody copes, um, just, uh, some are, uh, healthier than other methods. So having a plan in place, I think is one of the biggest things. You know, uh, one of our, Graduates, because I posted this accidentally on my personal profile and not in the uh, podcast group, uh, it did give the um, opportunity to uh, one of our previous graduates um, to comment on this. And one of the things she said uh, was that during her residency anyway, she encountered several deaths and she um, often works with peds with children um, and she was you know, devastated by at least one of them. And of course she was, you know, certainly upset about the others too. There was no room in her residency program for grieving. In fact, her chief basically said, well, here's some pamphlets. And, huh. and so I don't know, I doubt that's representative of every residency program for sure, but it is, you know, there's not a lot of room in residency 
to deal with difficulty deal with emotional difficulty which is really unfortunate but it's a you know it, it is also a function of the workload the the depth to which programs depend on residents to keep the ship afloat and 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 that sort of thing not an excuse just a you know sort of an explanation <laughs> i and, and last week i think it was last week's show we talked about um opportunities for pre-meds to uh get good experiences that would also teach them something hospice again yeah, yeah. we mentioned hospice as that possibility right mark mm-hmm. i think hospice is just uh, you know not to you know harp on it too much but again you know medicare requires that a portion of the work done uh, is by volunteers. So you're really providing a fantastic service, not just to the individual in that moment, which is, you know, uh, a priceless value for both of you, um, in terms of growth, but also to keeping that institution of hospice care going. Um, I just think it's so great and it's fantastic. Um, I know my brother did a, a good amount of uh, hospice volunteering and, you know, just being able to share, uh, experiences and talk, uh, was profoundly just great for him. I, you know, him before that experience and after were two very, uh, different individuals. I would imagine that engaging in that experience would really help you understand better, um, the process of death and dying. It would really help you understand better what it is you may face as a physician someday and really also even more importantly perhaps is understanding how you should deal with death as a as a physician how you should approach death how you should think about it how you should prepare people for it um it sounds like that would be super useful on a person i think it just even from a personal level you will experience the death of loved ones it's just it is an inve inevitable process of life yeah so you know, really, I think uh, doing that when it is not uh, confronting you immediately is such a different perspective than when you're in the moment. That's a good point. And I, I think there's so much power in reading the experiences uh, or hearing the experiences of people as they go through those processes. It's just so uh, it changes everything. It snaps so much into perspective about what you're worried about, what your fears are. And it's not that those all go away and you say, oh, I found peace because they can be magnified in, you know, tremendous ways or, uh, you know, assuaged as well. Can I repeat one, one plea um, I heard Jake mention is uh, if you are struggling to uh, process death of patients or uh, people you care, care about and care for, uh, please reach out. Um, I lost a, a friend and role model to suicide. He was a paramedic and was the guy that people went to for these issues. Um, so I think it's, it's very common in medicine, in first responders, police officers, firefighters to uh, view yourself as the, as the person people come to for help. Um, sometimes the the helpers need help too so please uh if that's ever an issue you find yourself confronting just reach out even if it's uh some dude on the internet that you listen to talk every now and then so. 
Who are you referring to? Oh. (laughs) Dave specifically, please. Okay. (laughs) If there's anyone out there still listening, don't forget to contribute your favorite recipes for medical student success at theshortcoat.com. Look for the orange send in a recipe button to add your delectable delight. I will send you an SCP key, key fob if you include your contact info and every contributor gets a free copy of the final cookbook whenever that comes out. Contributors like Abby's Kick A asterisk asterisk guacamole. I don't know what that middle word was, but Lauren's salsa chicken bake and Emma's turkey and root vegetable curry. Thank you guys so much for your contributions. You can also get a key fob by submitting a review or talking us up among your online and med student communities or PA communities. I don't want to leave you guys out this time. Uh, and then sending a screenshot of it to the at gmail.com. We'll be putting a link to all the topics we discussed in today's episode show notes at the shortcode.com. But for now, that is our show. Aline, Shakura, Mark, Jaden, Amy, Tom, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, listeners. And thank you, listeners, for making us a part of your week. If you like what you heard today, we hope we've earned your subscription. Not only do we give out free key fobs, but we give free advice. Uh, So I don't know if it'll be good advice, but you can send your questions or whatever you like to the shortcoats at gmail.com, or you can leave us a message at 347-SHORT-CT. We'll talk about it in the show. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College Medicine Student Government and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities Program. Our executive producer is Jason Lewis. Our opening music is by Dr. Vox and our closing music is by Catmosphere. Talk to you in one week.